The winner of the Sobe Art Award was announced at the National Gallery of Canada on November 6th, awarding Lac Luke Williamson Battery from the Prairies in the North. Until February 20th, visitors can see an inspired exhibition of new works from the five shortlisted artists. This includes Battery, Gabby Dow from the West Coast and Yukon, Rajni Pereira representing Ontario, Lorna Bauer representing Quebec, and Remy Bellevaux, the Atlantic. Their combined work spans a dynamic range of artistic media and represents five of Canada's leading emerging visual artists. With a promise to energize and challenge visitors to the National Gallery of Canada, plan your visit to the 2021 Sobe Art Award exhibition today. Visit gallery.ca for more information. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden. And I'm Lauren Wetmore. So was it a good chat or what was it like? I think it would be absolutely impossible not to have chemistry with that person. <laughs> he is it's true. incredibly eloquent and, you know, one of those people where you just enter a conversation and there's no point at which you feel like you are kind of rowing a boat upstream mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. like that. Just so uh, kind of generous in his, in his conversation making. Mm-hmm. This conversation does seem to kind of flow out of this deep impression he made on us in uh, August, where he joined us for a full day of um, leading workshops and conversations with our Momus Emerging Critics Residency. And I mean, I know I was um, held in his hand that whole day. I mean, I don't think there was a day of that residency that I felt more like uh, a student of writing and Uh so enthusiastically, Uh you know, a student of writing than I did with Emmanuel. I texted you as he was speaking. (laughs) I was like, if this is what a writing MFA would be, then sign me up immediately. (laughs) Like, I'm going back to school. (laughs) But of course, no, it's, you know, it doesn't get better than than what we witnessed just there. I mean, really extraordinary interlocutor. I've been thinking about this word interlocutor. It's like, you know how these words become become popular? Interlocutor was like maybe like two years ago, a really big deal. Don't you think? <laughs> Suddenly I was like, what? Interlocutor? What? <laughs> it's it's a heavy piece of machinery to just drop into a sentence though. <laughs> the grind grinding wheels on that exactly. term it's a real dumb flex like you mean the person you're talking to or? <laughs> I think there's just a lot of scaffolding that we erect around our point in order to puff up the entry but I think it's also just verbal ticks oh, right sure. well you know who doesn't produce unnecessary ticks or scaffolding mm. and mm. speaks like an arrow sails through wind mm. is Mr. Emmanuel Aduma who you spoke with for, I suppose, the launch of our fifth season. Should we mention that this is what this is for our listeners? We're, we're kicking it off. That was a delicious transition, by oh, the way. Oh, thank you. It's been so long. <laughs> right. Emmanuel Iduma. Whenever he introduces himself in interviews or in videos, he always, I noticed, says this thing, I'm a writer and I write about art. Yeah. Which is a very, like, as somebody who kind of 
tries to shy away a bit from an idea of art criticism, but also likes to write about art. It's like, how do, how, what are we calling this, you know? Yeah. So I thought that was a, that was a pretty perfect way to put it. And he speaks about that quite eloquently. But yeah, so he's an author. He's Nigerian, based now in Lagos. I think that there was a transition from New York to Lagos during COVID. And when we spoke, he was still there. The book that he might be more famously known for is called A Stranger's Pose. And it's a book of travel stories where he responds to photographs that were taken as he was traveling around countries in Africa. He's also contributed to a really huge array of magazines and journals, um, you know, the New York Review of Books, Art in America, Brooklyn Rail, Guernica, and lots of monographs on artists. The travel memoir, A Stranger's Pose, is very close to my heart. And, and I think because it gives such freedom to a reader to sort of fill in what is not said in that way that travel writing invites us, that, that art writing can sometimes foreclose against, um, he really insists on the imaginary space, the also kind of fictionalization of art writing, at the kind of invention of it happening in response to an object rather than sort of erected to defend or... <laughs> to claim an object. There's just, there's a real relationality in insisted on in his writing. What I really appreciated that he brought to, brought to his session for the residency was just like doing, um, like actually having to write, like mm-hmm. sitting down and working mm-hmm. and how he kept on stressing that. Yes. And then also if you hold that in balance with his other sort of strenuous point that day, which was, that experimentation is not the goal. And in mm-hmm. fact, it's it's an insult mm-hmm. <laughs> when mm-hmm. we're working on a certain level. Um, so I think he has brought like a kind of moral fiber back to um, maybe a like too long derided aspect of art writing, mm-hmm. in part because it was flooding the platforms for a few years there uh, as we were like too fearful to actually issue criticism. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Well, first, I would say there was a high watermark um, a, about a year or two ago where uh, maybe maybe more like three years ago, around 2018, we saw a kind of like exhaustion, I think, start to emerge on mm-hmm. readers' behalves um, around a certain kind of like personalized, not necessarily fictionalized, but a kind of memoiristic, you know, the hangover of Maggie Nelson was real. Let's put it that way <laughs> around like how to approach um, braiding one's biography or positionality with how they were experiencing art, how, how the impact of art was being received hmm. um, in addition to a kind of critical framing. And uh, I mean, I'm it, shocked that you just derided Maggie Nelson. I know her <laughs> new book has not gotten good reviews, but before that. I no, mean, I'm not talking. I'm talking about the people who shadowed, you know, who just I see. Yes, who yes, dragged, yes. who dragged that. Um, I mean, what she did was so hyper-specific and, and skill. so you know, skilled, it's not easily exactly. modeled. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the thing that Emmanuel is saying. It's like if you're gonna do it, it's gonna have to be <laughs> exactly. like at the top of the mountain, or else yeah. we're all gonna see right through it. Yeah, I would also just say that the urgency of our times has brought a certain sharpness back to the function of mm. criticism, and so you can you can more or less uh, align these tides with. With this, with their seawalls, but nevertheless, I I do think at this point we've we've started to um, 
separate the wheat from the chaff a little bit in terms of the skill level that the kind of writing Emmanuel is engaged with requires. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He describes his writing in a really beautiful moment in this interview as having a very clear commitment. This is a quote, having a very clear commitment to writing as a form of generosity, mm-hmm. of openness to the world, that it's very humane, it has moral stakes. The piece that we spoke to does exactly this. It brings a humaneness um, and a generosity. So it's called Mileage from Here, Nine Narratives. This is writing about art that was published in a big monograph. So it's a big monograph of photographs by Todd Webb. It's called Todd Webb in Africa, and it was published this year by Thames and Hudson. Todd Webb is an American photographer. You would Google him and immediately recognize his photographs. They're kind of famous black and white cityscapes, New York and Paris. So this book is, is a very unusual presentation of his work in that it is photography that he did in 1958 when he was invited by the United Nations Department of Public Information, basically on a five-month assignment to travel around countries in Africa and document industrial progress in the sort of post-World War II era. Very strangely, these photographs were lost for over 50 years hmm. until they were discovered in the archive um, in 2017. And so this book brings 150 of these color photographs, which again is a bit unusual for a Todd Webb presentation together. And they commissioned several writers to respond to and write about uh, Todd Webb's photographs. Emmanuel's gesture or strategy is to choose a series of photographs and write directly to and about them. He's able to imagine a world in and outside of these photographs, both at the time that they were taken and now, say, for the reader. So mm. in a way, you have a, you have a story that is told over the course of sort of a series of vignettes that are accompanied by these very striking photographs of Todd Webb's. This one appears at the end. We decided that I could read it at the beginning so listeners could get an idea of, of his approach to engaging with Todd Webb's photography. Um, sure. So... Or do you want to read it? Should I send it to you? Sure. Okay. Writers of fiction are quick to point out that stories evolve in the process of being written. The characters turn complex, sometimes even intransigent, or at the very least begin to act in a way that strays from their original intention. To proceed with fiction, I needed to give up photographic certitude. Hence, the order in which I have written about Todd Webb's photographs is a conceit, as is much of what I narrate. I take account of realities that connect across self and space and time. If documentary photographs, when they depict unnamed subjects, require particularized responses, my goal was to speculate on the identities of individuals in Webb's photographs by allotting stories and meditations to them. To look at these photographs is to consider the outset of modernity in several post-colonial African countries. Webb was there to photograph the moment of promise, and now I am looking at the remains of those who have passed into history. Yeah, I mean, I feel that that's such a perfect introduction to what he's doing in this text that I almost want to flow that directly into his reading. 
I'm so happy this is how we're starting the season, to introduce Lauren Wetmore in conversation with Emmanuel Aduma, reading from Mileage from Here, Nine Narratives. Keepsake. B's wife is gone. While in New York for graduate school, she sent him several dozen photographs of herself. In the summers, she would ask a passerby to take a photo of her for him, and the city would seem to enfold her in a wide embrace, her smile like a pockmarked glint. During the winters, she would bring her face so close to the camera, he could sometimes see crumbs of food on her upper lip, as if she had held a half-eaten sandwich in her free hand. In either case, he was amused by her need to send keepsakes to him. He would have that thought long enough to feel guilty for not measuring up, at which point he would send back a photo of himself, sometimes the same one he had sent the previous week. She never complained. All that fussing over keepsakes has become unnecessary. Once, when they lay on the asphalt, those years ago when neither had declared law for the other, they tried to distinguish one star from another. Once, again when their love was undeclared, she let him take selfies of their faces together. So close he wondered if she would flinch from the bristles of his closely shaven skin. One day he remarked that she hadn't smiled in any of their pictures together. She warned in response, that he mustn't assume that her unsmiling face was an expression of disdain, instead a measure of feeling. This is what he remembers of what she said, and he is unconcerned that in her absence he has produced new versions of their past. What matters is that to linger on any portrait she left behind is to wait for the moment grief re-enters a cosmos of tenderness. Lying on the asphalt, the beliefs that could mark the pathways made by stars as they fell to their resting place. He remembers everything. What occurs to him is like an album of old photographs, peopled with strangers in remote places, to whom he may allot their past. He has become insomniac from a slideshow of memories. To hold in esteem is not necessarily to be in love. But no one in love will shy from looking as if they hold their beloved or hope to be held in esteem. A face in profile. If anything came close to a ritual the first year of their marriage, it was weekend trips to Labadi Beach to draw. She owned a Volkswagen then, a Beetle, and they hauled easels into the trunk. But the large rolls of paper she would hand to him once he sat firmly in the passenger seats. During the hours of walking, they paid little attention to each other. If the corner of her eyes searched him out, it was only to confirm his walk hadn't been hampered. The ocean was difficult to please. There were days when the first stroke of her drawing was made with the edge of a brush and the last with the tip of a blunt pencil. He does not remember a yacht or sulfur appearing in any of her pictures, only waves. 
Once, when he watched her draw, he saw that she had stayed on moving, and her head was pressed close to the sheet in front of him. No word or utterance, but breath. She was poised that way for no less than a minute. He wished to call to her, but feared that if he did, he would foil her concentration. After two years, he stopped going with her. By then, he had come to understand that her need for persisting in depicting the onrush of waves wasn't his. He made sketches of the touch of skyscrapers against the sky as far as his eyes could see, but he would rather be painting squares with restrained tones. Not so for her. It didn't seem to matter how long she kept looking at the ocean. If the ocean repeated a scoring, so would she. If the ocean's form appeared unerring, so would she, her hands seeking natural forms. He didn't have her patience, her packed with longevity. Weeks after he stopped accompanying her, he noticed a new obsession. She returned with sketches of a face drawn in profile. The ocean had led to a face. Once he let her go alone, she changed the subject. His studio has changed and fed with shelves when she was still here. It is now cleared of all except a large work table, one against which he can walk standing. And besides the settee, where he often sees Connor, he is allowed no other furniture. On the work table, there are several paper types, crepe, mats, manila, laid out on a grid. From the distance of the doorway, a passerby could see on each the outline of a face. Alone, he returns to the quayside to watch from afar a view of the beach. Sometimes absent-minded, he holds out a hand drawn. None had looked like him, even in profile, as though she had aimed to preserve his anonymity. Presence. He never met his father, but once in his early thirties, he was waiting in a corner of a railway station for what or whom he couldn't recall. He had his back to the window, and the sharp evening light had thrown an outline of his head against the adjacent wall. The light played a trick on him. His head became one of many. The illusion was so startling, he swears to have seen faces of all the men he had ever known for more than a casual hello. Where was his father's face? He reached for a personality he knew for certain and found it obscure. Not just the face, a manner of appearance. Yet face and gesture were repressed, and he struggled with hints of a presence. How could this be? What is the memory of a face that has never been beheld? In transit, suppose I live on a space station. It barrels along at 22 times the speed of sound, 400 meters above Earth. In addition to livable rooms, larger, larger than a five-bedroom house, two bathrooms, and sleeping quarters for crew members, there is a 360-degree bay window. From this window, as the station orbits the Earth, a journey that takes an hour and a half, 
Entire continents, entire oceans can be seen in one glance. On board, in the course of those 90 minutes, the sun rises and sets. The first mysteries of time compressed, observing from a certain perspective, moving at a certain speed, the normal flow of time is disrupted, as if I step into a whirlpool of consciousness. The second mystery is of life compressed. What would it mean for the past and future if time were measured differently, an hour and a half between sunrise and sunset? Seen from that vantage, what is the unit for quantifying experience? To travel is to experience both mysteries. All modern forms of transportation focus on speed, as indubitable as both propositions are, they might seem cliched to most humans today. Yet no other form of engagement with the world highlights the mystery of transition without obfuscation as travel does. Whether on a train, airplane, or spaceship, or a car, the traveling body knows itself in flux. Consider, then, those who see others while they are about to embark on journeys or are in transits, acknowledging faces against which the entire gamut of human expression might be found. In the hurry of their glance, they notice all the people who were and are yet to come. It is not too lofty to declare that those faces signify a virtuous form of human exchange. When all is fleeting, and nothing is said or replied to. We hold each other in possibility. No person land. The photograph of the border station is not as I remember the event, but I'll let the disjuncture stand. Late afternoon, nearly a decade ago, leaving Ethiopia en route to Sudan, I was traveling with a group of artists, and none of us had realized that we carried single-entry visas for Sudan. We got out of Ethiopia all right, but once we presented our passports to the Sudanese officials, they shook their head and turned us back. We found out soon enough that it was a terrible, not to mention impossible, situation. Having been stamped out of Ethiopia and refused access to Sudan, we only had rights of stay in the no-person land, a patch as long as a quarter of a mile. We waited and wondered. Then the leader of the group recalled that while in Ethiopia, we had met with the ambassador of Nigeria to Ethiopia. When he called the ambassador, we were in such luck, it is difficult to retell this without speaking in terms of a miracle. For it turned out, that at the time he received our call, the ambassador was in a meeting with the ambassador of Sudan to Ethiopia. He, in turn, directed his immigration officials to allow us entry into Sudan, regardless of what was stated on our visas. And finally, boyhood. There are five boys in all, none of us older than eight. One turns to his fellow, straightening his finger into the barrel of a gun. His thumb the trigger 
The other raises his hand in surrender, his mouth carved into an R. Collison Thief. Everyone knows that game. Another set of boys stand as a duo of famous musicians would. One clutches an invisible microphone. The other strums a rock guitar, entertaining a sea of clamoring fans. The police and thief boys and the singing duo do not glance at their viewer, lost in the exuberance of their alternate selves. Now think of him standing in the middle of his peers, his arms folded, peering at you. What did he want to become, this boy refusing to stand like us? Imagine him pictured alone and from the side. The photograph is unfocused. He's lanky in the way boys that age can be. Seen from the side in an unfocused photograph, he's still the boy with a severe look, as if all he wanted in his life was to be left alone. I'll tell you the story of that second photograph. Late one afternoon when we were about 12, I asked him to accompany me to see the photographer, my uncle. I saw he was worried about something. What is it? I asked. He wouldn't say. And we got to the entrance of the studio. My uncle had just finished with some clients, including a man whose shirt opened to reveal a cowrie stringed necklace. Boy, you can talk to me, my uncle said. But he shook his head and began to cry. Ah, look, a boy as big as you are is crying like a baby, the photographer said. If you don't stop crying, I won't take a photo of you. He wiped his eyes then. When you see the photograph, what you see in the photograph is a boy who has just stopped crying, trying hard to show some bravado. And when you know a man as a boy, you know all there is to know about him. I wanted to start um, with maybe a really general question, mm. because we should say that each of these was written in response to a photograph by the American photographer Todd Webb, um, photographs yes. taken in the late 1950s. And this is a, a sort of gesture or strategy of writing that you're familiar with. Um, in your book, A Stranger's Pose, you also kind of describe about how you you started writing in response to photographs, and then those mm -hmm. photographs are reproduced in the book. But as I understand it, the, di the difference between these two things is that uh, for a stranger's pose, you're writing about photographs that um, were taken by people you know in mm -hmm. contexts that you visited. Um, whereas in this, it, this is uh, you are separated from the from the context of these photos by you know time and space and all sorts of different kinds of contexts. So I'm really interested to hear about using the same kind of strategy, but how um, like how that strategy must have shifted and evolved uh, due to these two kind of conditions. Yeah. Um, so the first thing is that, you know, the, the process for me has been to think about um, um, a thought space created between images and text, like or a shared space created between images and text. And I, I was so fascinated um, 
with this concept or, you know, this approach, I think because at the outset of working with photography, I had no ambitions to, to be a photographer. I mean, that's mm. changing a little bit now. But, um, you know, when I started writing about photographs, traveling with photographers and just thinking about photographs in general, I was far more interested in, um, you know, what my text could do in response to those photographs and not necessarily say, you know, taking photographs myself. And, right. um, and so the, the, the creation of some kind of middle ground or, or space between those two practices um, was really um, the starting point for me. So in a strangest pose, you know, of course, I, I was walking on one hand with a travel experience, on another hand with, um, you know, the, um, the, the photographs of, of artists that I'd, I'd traveled with. And, and perhaps on the third hand, you know, really just this um, twilight zone between genres, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? So photography, criticism, um, fiction, and um, an essay. And so, so that compelled its own kind of response, which was less um, in any way directly connected to one photograph as much as to the evocation of, um, of mood, right? Mm. And so in A Stranger's Pose, what I was really doing was to think about the travel experience and think about the photographs that um, I had seen, I had seen in some cases being made, and to respond um, overall to experience and not necessarily to the photographs, right? Um, but of course, that got me started on, on I guess on this kind of practice to some degree, right? Um, and so by the time I got the commission to, to, to write um, for this book, for this, um, you know, this monograph, mm-hmm. I, I had had ample opportunity, right, to practice, I guess, this, this, this kind of image text response. And so in this particular situation, I was committed Right, so responded to responding, I beg your pardon, um, directly to the photographs. And mm-hmm. by directly, I don't necessarily mean describing the photographs, but mm-hmm. really working with what was um, visible in those photographs in order to, um, to, to, to create or to, to tell these stories that um, were, even if not um, necessarily connected to Todd Webb or, you know, his own experience of making photographs on the continents in the late 50s, but we're really rooted in, in, in what was to some degree observable in the photographs. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm. I'm interested in this, uh, you saying that it's sort of a, twi- like the writing that you do is a twilight zone of genres, mm. um, because I often struggle with knowing how to how to refer to people you know is this person is this person an an art, an art critic a novelist how <laughs> you know how how like what what words are we using now to describe this practice but so i was watching i've heard you speak and then of course i was watching like a few videos to prepare mm. for this and i noticed that you say a very specific thing which is that you say i'm a writer i write about art and I wonder I wonder like two things Mm. one 
how do you come to how do you come to being a writer that writes about art, but also how do you come to knowing that that's the right way to describe it? Uh-huh. Um, I mean, all of that, the process of self-definition, you know, is still mm-hmm. <laughs> ongoing. And um, <laughs> I think that, you know, something that occurs to me as I speak now is how early I got into all of this, right? I, I really got into, you know, publishing my work, you know, pretty pretty early in life, right? I was 22, 20, I was 20, I was 23 when my novel came out in, in Nigeria. Um, but we should also say you had, you got a law degree. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah, I got a law degree. Yeah. But that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that was a degree and not, <laughs> that was right. an education that was gotten, um, and not necessarily, uh, um, you know, I didn't practice law, so I, I never became I a legal professional. Okay. Um, but to the degree that a legal education is a profession, I, I was I was a lawyer. Oh, I am a lawyer. Um, <laughs> You're right. a lawyer and a writer that uh, writes about art. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I I I think about that now, right? Like the the fact that I got into all of this pretty early in life, and I say that because I'm extremely um, and and grateful for for that, right? To figure out right after I left law school that, you know, I, I wanted to make a life as a writer or to define myself as one. And, um, I mean, it's never, I mean, there's no roadmap, really. You can only think right. about writers who have succeeded, but there's really no way to know, um, A, if you would succeed or, you know, how you would succeed. And so pretty much after I left law school and up till now, the process has been um, to, 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 to get increasingly clear about what the stakes are as, as I've proceeded, right? And so, so that's, that's that, right? So how do I become a writer? Or how did I become a writer who can say, I'm a writer that writes about art? You know, I mean, part of what I was thinking about, right, when we were in the residency and what I was trying to sort of expound on and expand, right, is the idea of trajectory, right? So when I look back in retrospect, a lot of the thinking that I've done and a lot of the opportunities even that I've had has sort of shaped, you know, how I've considered my writing or like how I've attempted to define my writing. So it comes out of like being you know, throughout the time I was in university, writing mostly fiction and poetry. And then right after university and law school, you know, starting to travel and work with with visual artists. I mean, up till that point, I had no experience. I mean, I probably would be hard-pressed to say I'd even read a piece of art criticism, right, while I was right. in university, right? Because, of course, I was studying law. So I, I didn't really have access to art history um, or or, you know, art criticism in the way that I began to to practice it. And so from that trip, sort of things opened up. I, you know, I met someone who said, you know, hey, you should go study art criticism. It seems you're interested in this thing or the kind of writing you're doing. It's really about images and on all of that. But by then I was, you know, already publishing a novel. So I wasn't going into the art writing program at SVA, you know, for, for my graduates studies um, without any sort of, um, what would I say, um, any sort of practice, if I would use that word. I had like real 
interest in creative writing and fiction and all that. So when you combine that with the kind of eclecticism that, you know, happened to me <laughs> while I was all the kind of eclectic readings and, and, you know, seminars that I attended while I was at SVA, you produce something that is not um, that's even to some degree anxious, right? Right. It's it, it's um, it's to some degree um, always questioning what form is, and that's mm-hmm. really what happened to me. So by the time I was done, um, I had produced a draft of A Stranger's Pose as my thesis. I knew that I was not interested in conventional um, art criticism in the sense that I wanted to just develop a practice of responding to exhibitions or to artworks. I knew that I was trying to look for a form that that could attend to, you know, multiple interests and obsessions. Right. Um, and that form is still errant, really. It's still... Um, <laughs> itinerant that's the better word right i'm still trying to track down you know um you know what that form is but one thing i know for certain is also what i was saying in that in that residency to the participants that i'm not interested in hierarchies mm-hmm. um and and it took me a long time to be faithful to that saying really um in the sense that i started out thinking you know just always you know write something that is not straightforward that's the way you can exper- you can not experiment but like produce something that is um formally ambitious but now i'm no right. longer interested in that i mean really interested in 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 <laughs> to some degree in conventional um, ah. you know, conventional work, right? So how can this piece, and what I mean by conventional is, how can this piece, say like this nine narratives I wrote, work yeah. within um, a particular genre and work yeah. well, right? Yeah. And even sort of um, do something beyond what is expected of the piece of writing, you know, yes. whether it's um, an exhibition review or, you know, um, a narrative essay. And I think, in, in, in finally, you know, on this point, right, what I have been really fortunate with, and that is becoming even increasingly so for me, is that I've really been blessed with opportunities across board, right? I have mm-hmm. been asked to write exhibition reviews for more traditional, like, art publications. I've been invited by artists to respond to their work in monographs, you know, um, published, mm-hmm. um, you know, for exhibition reviews where, where I have freedom, like in this Ted Todd Webb piece, to sort of be more um, ambitious in what the form could do. I've been, I've started increasingly in the last year writing for more mainstream literary publications, you know, um, um, like Granta, you know, just like straight up memoir, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, or... Or, or thinking about, you know, a book, for instance, that I've been working on that is pretty much like working simply as a memoir um, or like a historical narrative and not necessarily um, sort of this more, um, you know, eclectic mix of things that A Stranger's Pose was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did I answer I'm that interest- question? 
<laughs> yeah, you did, but I'm going to ask you another one that's related yeah. because, um, yeah, I'm really interested to hear that you're saying that you're thinking about more kind of genre writing or like conventional writing as you described it to be focused on genre. Um, because I was listening to this other interview where you were describing your thesis advisor, Claudia LaRocco, who mm -hmm, said, mm -hmm. you know, you can do whatever you want. Like you can fuck around as much as you want, <laughs> but the stakes are really, really high. Yeah. And um, in this talk, you were, you kind of said another way of saying what, what Claudia was saying is that you can be as vulnerable as you want, mm -hmm. but vulnerability has very high stakes. Yes. And I've often thought about kind of, for lack of a better word, like experimental writing, personal narrative fragmentation, or, or like poetic strategies within mm -hmm. art writing is often, in my opinion, um, like employed in service of more like obfuscation or mm -hmm. imprecision <laughs> or vagueness. Yeah. Um, which of course is not what you're doing. And when it's done well, it can be done really, really well. And as you say, it can bring something, it can create like a third space yeah. that wasn't there before. Um, but yeah, I think it was just this idea of experimentation as being a place of vulnerability. It was nice to be reminded of that, um, whereas my thinking has more and more been about experimentation is actually almost like a, a shell around uh, like a lack of focus of form, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, just generally, I... I grew into this, right, um, mm. you know, because I was asking a lot of questions of myself, especially mm -hmm. given the background that I'd had. I'd, I'm still asking those questions. And I, I was very, very clear from the outset that I wasn't interested in experimentation and simply because hmm. I wasn't interested in writing that um, in, in the sense of and maybe Claudia would disagree, actually, um, in the sense of, like, form that just fails for the sake of failing. Right. I mean, right. the essay is an argument, right? So it's, it's an attempt, rather. Uh, and so, of course, I'm happy to write a text that, you know, I can then expand in my thinking and not a text, right? So in that sense, failure is welcome. But in the sense that um, I'm not uh, thorough in considering what the text is doing. I, I, don't, I don't want that for my writing. I, I have um, a very clear um, commitment in my thinking to writing as a form of generosity, as a form of um, um, openness to the world, as a form of, as a gift, you know? Um, and so in that sense, it's very humane. It's very... Um, it has moral stakes. Um, and so I, I have not, and I'll, I'll say, this, say it this way, I have not found in my own thinking around experimentation, right, how experimentation, just for the sake of it, can attend uh, to, those, um, to, to those principles of generosity and um, humaneness. Um, it's difficult for me to, to figure that out. What I have seen is that writers who have been given to experimentation, you know, um, usually do it for the sake of 
um, a larger, you know, say ideological point, right? Writing can be this, right? Mm-hmm. One can just mm-hmm. write anything that comes to their mind and it's a form of, you know, it's a hallucinatory, um, um, <laughs> it's a hallucinatory text. Well, yes, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, that's something larger. That's my kind of bigger point they're trying to prove with their writing, um, more yeah. like conceptual art. Um, yeah. But I'm not, I'm very serious about writing as a means of um, being clear about what the world that one has been given is and how they can interrogate um, interrogate that world. And... and um, and and so the notion of vulnerability, how it comes into all of this, is really that um, when when one is vulnerable, when one is um, thinking through their own place in the world in response to whatever idea they are sort of walking through, I feel like that's when the writing truly becomes meaningful to others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that, you know, it's like one of my favorite anecdotes, you know, that I read in an interview by Manuel Carrere, who overheard a mother, a child and a mother, and the mother says to the child, um, <clears throat> the mother says to the child, put yourself in <laughs> the other person's shoes, right? Which is, you know, what we say. And the child says, but if I put myself in their shoes, where do they disappear to? Right. <laughs> um, and so this idea that um, there is no removal of the person who wants to engage with the other, right? Um, is is for me what vulnerability is, um, that you're always willing to consider your position um, when you're thinking about, you know, the other, and the other can be in that, for the text, you know, say the experience that you're sort of trying to reflect on, or sometimes even the reader, um, you know, however vaguely defined um, that reader is, right? So, yeah, yeah, so that's, that's, that's where I am. Yeah. And that reflects really beautifully, I think, on on this piece you read from, because the idea, I guess, with it is that you are yourself placing yourself in um, in Todd Webb's shoes in a mm-hmm. way. Um, but of course, he is always present, as are you in both of those moments, as are the people that you're invoking by describing the context or uh, describing an imagined context around the photographs. Um, mm. And that le- leads me to a question that... You, I know you think and, and talk a lot about travel writing mm. and how um, the form is usually centered around this idea is sort of like a heroic tale, like a white man traveling to a country not of his <laughs> origin. It becomes like this hero narrative of like this person who survives and prevails upon a people and a land and a culture. And I wonder um, how, how you see Todd, Todd Webb's sort of this photography, this body of photography as maybe an extension of that, and then how you were able to write in and around that. Because mm. um, I think that these texts repudiate that, but they are also existing within this book. Like I was even reading the uh, the advertisement for the book and it's, uh, let me see. Yeah, so it's described as, quote, a photographic journey by one of the 20th century's great photographers mm. through eight African countries on the cusp of independence post-World mm. War II. And so it's, it, I think it is really bringing forward this, this idea of that hero, that narrative hero coming to this place. Um, yeah, I, I, would, I would be really interested to hear how you kind of worked through that or thought through that or if that was even a consideration. Yeah, 
I mean, I mean, there's no, there's no question about um, the the fact that I um, that the work I did for for this book, you know, I mean, response to Todd Webb proceeded from a hesitation, right? Hmm. Um, and um, how could you, how could I speak to Todd Webb's work outside the um, we, we, you know, or outside or with the knowledge that he was a white man looking at black bodies at a particular time in African history. Um, mm-hmm. A very also, you know, particularly problematic time in African history, which was a yes. time when, um, you know, they were in, you know, clamor, there was clamor around the continent for, for self-rule and all that. The work of colonialism was sort of, changing in its um, methods, you know, from from a more direct engagement with people to more like um, neo-colonial, you know, approaches and all that. And nice. and this was the UN um, ostensibly that commissioned him to go into all of these countries, right? Um, and so you have all of these photographs that came out of those... Um, one would say tensions. And so I, as, as a Nigerian writer, as a Nigerian, as a black person, um, who had always been very, very particular in my thinking that the task of decolonization wasn't quite done, that we always have mm-hmm. to, to, to think about ways in which decolonization is still necessary. I'm faced with all these photos and I'm thinking, well, I've agreed to write something I think I should write something. And it's precisely because of these hesitations um, that I should write something. Um, mm. And so uh, there were two things that helped me, um, and, and both are in relation to the photographs. Um, the first was, you know, when I started looking at these photographs, I really felt that, especially the portraits, most of them were very tender, um, mm-hmm. tender photographs in the sense that um, you saw the complexity, you saw, you know, sometimes the restiveness, um, but you also saw a, a sort of collaboration between photographer and subject. And it was very different from um, photographs um, that, say, the British had taken, you know, yes. like 50 years prior or whatever, you know, that were squarely ethnographic. Um, in in or oh, well, we wouldn't say necessarily only ethnographic. It was worse than just being ethnographic. It was yeah, right. quite violent, right? Yes. These were photographs that were meant to simply consider the subjects or the people who were being looked at as types, native yeah. types, and all kinds of very problematic descriptions. Um, and so I really thought, and I stand by that, that these were worked in a different kind of register. Perhaps in part due to his complete, the usual American <laughs> um, <laughs> lack of knowledge about the world, um, right. <laughs> you know, and not necessarily, I'm not saying that in particular to him, but there was a sort, sort of like really openness um, 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 to, to, to the mission, so to speak. And so these photographs I thought were quite tender. And in addition, I, I really felt that his compositional um, acuity was just so good, right? He wasn't mm-hmm. simply interested in looking at the bodies in these spaces. He was also interested in what can I, as a photographer, do with my camera? How can I compose a photo yeah. um, that that was really 
um, something um, that pushed me um, um, technically, right? And so you have all this this photo, for instance, you know, of just like an elbow jutting out of the frame, right? You know, it's very <laughs> different from what you would see from photographers who wanted to take more accomplished photos and um, be very exact in how they were depicting people. So this was, to some degree, an artist who was thinking about his methods and mm-hmm. um, and was open to what he was seeing. And so I, 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 I respected that openness. I thought it was um, really the basis of, upon which I could, I could, I could walk, I could walk, I could, I could think. And then finally, you know, I, one of the things that I did really um, quite simply was to, and, and you know, ask um, the editors to send me, um, you know, all of the photos, right? I selected um, about a dozen photos, um, I think more initially, and sort of then uh, looked more carefully, um, um, looked at, you know, some of the photos that I felt I could respond to. And so when you combine, um, you know, I think the kind of photographs that Todd Webb made and, you know, the freedom I had to choose the photos that were speaking to me in a particular way. I think um, I felt like I had dealt with my hesitation. And how, what has the reception to this work been? <laughs> I don't know. Like, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think, you know, we could have a larger conversation about these kinds of books, you know. Yeah. Um, Do you mean like uh, large monographs? Large monographs, right? Yeah. I yeah, mean, first okay. of all, it's not trade publishing, um, you know. So yeah. you are working already with a sort of hemmed in audience, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> hemmed in. Yes. Hemmed in audience. Um, or so, hemmed out, actually. Or hemmed out, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, hemmed out. That's a better <laughs> word. Um, and, um, and so. One can, I mean, I I never look for, um, I think probably maybe through a Google alert, I had seen like a review of the book and I can't remember what it said, Um, you know, but again, I don't know, right? So I don't know what, I don't know, I really can't can't (laughs) say in specifics what the reception has been. It's it's certainly important for, um, you know, Todd Webb's legacy, Yes. Um, and because the actually it's, there's a good story around all of this, right, that, you know, he had, quote unquote, lost this work, right? This was like a forgotten chapter in his, in his career, really. Hmm. Um, and so I think after he had passed, I mean, he's, he long died, I think, in the 90s or so, um, someone discovered like a, a trunk um, hmm. with these negatives, and the story is more, I think you can even find it online, but it's far more, uh, I can't remember the, the specifics, but someone found a trunk essentially with these mm-hmm. negatives. And that's how this book came to be really. Um, mm. Because nobody, almost everyone had forgotten that he did this work on the continent. And this is really minor, minor work, right? It's not, it's not um, what he's known for. I think he's known for more for like taking these black and white photos in New York and all that. Yeah. 
Um, so I think in that sense, one can think about a reception or just like the introduction of this different take on, on this, on this artist. And, um, I mean, of course it's a, it's a privilege to be, um, associated with it. One thing I know for sure is that I did probably the, the most, um, um, ambitious thing in that sense, right? Formerly ambitious mm-hmm. thing in the book, right? And mm-hmm. maybe that's its own um, its own reception. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Can we move into these um, questions that that we like to ask all of the all of the guests? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. The first question is: Do you like to write? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you mean like? I mean, you have to define like. Do you mean like as in um, do I feel that my life is um, satisfied? Like, I, do I feel satisfaction in my walk as a writer? <laughs> oh, is I guess. that how you would define it? <laughs> um, I mean, uh, well, yeah, let me just, you know, let me not be um, sarcastic in any way. Right. I think... Uh, the question is really one of whether I derive um, forms or any form of pleasure from yes. from writing. Yes. Um, the the process is generally quite um, demanding, right? It's um, mm-hmm. it's exacting, you know. Even more so, I think, as one becomes, you know, as you you get your work out there, more people are asking you to write stuff and all that. So you have to sort of prove that you can do something interesting even to yourself. So in terms of like actually doing the writing itself, it's not very pleasurable, right? Just like any, I imagine anybody doing anything, right? You know, joining wood into a table is not the most exciting thing one can do, <laughs> uh, say if you're, a, if you're a carpenter or whatever. But the, the, the pleasure in, in being a writer really comes from the process for me of um, self-interrogation, right? Which is, hmm. what am I trying to say and why does it matter? And what's the best way I can say it? And that process, you know, really just like the thinking that precedes the writing is is quite um, enjoyable to me. And, and even in some senses, uh, maybe because it's, it feels inevitable, that's why it feels mm-hmm. enjoyable. It's really what I feel like my life or one of the major things that my life is about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I constantly have to think about what language can do in relation to experience, to, 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 to the world. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the answer to whether I like writing. Uh, <laughs> that's good. That's good. The the answer is usually just no. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, no. I, well, let me just say something about that. I no longer say no. I mean, I think uh, there is nothing to be gained from just sort of just talking about how difficult writing is. I yeah. mean, I think it's fairly obvious to anyone yeah. that you know writing is not is not just you just write something and it comes out. You know. The, the mm-hmm, words mm-hmm. spill out that if you're trying to do something consequential, you have to really spend time on it. But I think that the, there's pleasure, and maybe pleasure is not a word, but there's real, real, um, there's a reason for it. And one should yeah. never forget that, that, that it can be helpful to others. 
That brings us to the second question, which is, who do you write for? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I, I find it very, I mean, that's a question that I can say easily that I don't know. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. generally think of a very discernible reader that I'm mm-hmm. writing for. I think in terms of really what the work is, you know, and the work I think I'd read, I think it's Ivan Vladislavic who said that the text is its own, is its own audience. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of favorable to that idea that when I'm writing, I'm thinking um, squarely really of what the text is supposed to be doing. And so I'm getting feedback from the text itself. Hmm, um, in okay. a primary sense, and so it's really interacting with um, with the writing itself, right? And of course, that interaction with the writing extends to you know the people who, for every given text, are an, um, like an immediate or necessary audience. So the editors who commission it, um, my wife, you know, just reading over my drafts, whatever, you know, friends that I send it to if I'm working on something that is lengthier and I need a feedback, right? Like a manuscript. Mm-hmm. And so they become a real audience to me, right? In that sense, right? I'm, I'm not writing for them, but I'm, it's almost like, I don't know if this is just semantic, but I'm writing to them. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and so there are, there are correspondences. Um, and one correspondence, I'll rather think about it that way, one correspondence is with the text, the ambitions um, that I have for the text. And the other correspondence is with, you know, a more, in a more practical sense with the editors um, and, say, friends, close friends and family that then, you know, have to give me some kind of feedback. And mm-hmm. and before, I mean, by the time it's being read by another person, I'm sort of done, right? Like, it's yeah. now too vague to imagine someone that is being corresponded to. Um, mm-hmm. But then finally, once in a while, you hear responses from people that make it all, you know, that make it really worth it, that, they, that, the, that the effort has been real and um, worth it in that sense. But that's not something that one can bank on or even yeah. contemplate really if you're going to be really productive when you, yeah. are, when you are writing. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I remember something you were talking about in the um, Emerging Writers Residency Mm -hmm. that really struck with me is this, uh, just this idea of actually having to sit down and do the writing, like, (laughs) in being productive. And uh, one of our questions on this list is sort of what do you wear when you're writing or like, what is your mise-en-scene? Like, when do you write? Do you have a kind (laughs) of ritual around it? And yeah, I was interested to ask you this question, particularly because you were so kind of cut and dry. Like, you have to sit down and do the writing. <laughs> it's work. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, the famous Andiliad quotes, you know, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Um, I, I, I come from, you know, a family, uh, you know, where a regimen was really the... Hmm. was really connected to, to, to spirituality and to work, right? Like hmm. um, the whole idea 
was that one did something repeatedly, you know, and in that sense, one could really get some kind of clarity about what life was. Um, I mean, this is me being sentimental about it, but I believe it very strongly. I mean, I really, really believe in ritual in the sense of things as occurring repeatedly and how that's the only way to really be effective and productive in one's life. Um, So in terms of my writing ritual, I mean, of course, I wouldn't lie that I write every day. It simply (laughs) has not been practical. I wish I I did that. I mean, I I think that it's important to if one can. Um, But I, I mean, I'm generally always, you know, having in the last, I think, five years or more, I've just always had something that I had to deliver one way or the other, which is a true, (laughs) true privilege, I think. And so what I do is that I, um, I, I generally need to have a good table, (laughs) Uh (laughs) Um, which is, which is usually quite wide, you know, just so that I can have like the the mental furniture, I think, of yes. the of the books around me, surrounded surrounding me. I generally also like my table to be tidy, um, <laughs> you know, just just also because it helps me focus. And um, in terms of the actual writing itself, I'm fairly committed to structuring the process. Right, so. I if I if I have a five thousand word piece to write, I divvy it up, you know, across like a couple of days or a number of days, sometimes a week, sometimes more, and just determine that every day I'm going to write a certain number of words, and then give my time myself time for revision. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, one thing that I've been doing more um, more recently has been to to write longer and actually, you know, and mostly for for shorter pieces. I mean, I am sending or writing my entire book longhand, but um, <laughs> a shorter piece that I, I I find it's hard to get into. I'll mostly just sort of write in my notebook paragraphs or like sections that I'll transfer into my Word document and then come back to write the next section longhand, transfer it. So between the mm-hmm. process of writing longhand and transferring into the Word document, there's actually an editorial process happening, right? Yes. I'm I'm revising. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking, oh, that was the wrong word, and 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 so before I know it, I'm done with the five fifteen hundred words or two thousand words or or less, you know, that I need to turn in. And of course, that's that's a process that can. That's just like the first draft process. I mean, I then mm-hmm. go over as many times as possible. Um, you know, until I feel like, oh, at least I can show this to the editor. And finally, I mean, I make sure that there is someone at the end of the, um, at the other end of the line, so to speak, who is going to read this. I mean, I don't believe that any writer can write a first draft that is perfect. Mm. And um, part of my hesitations around working with, you know, these hemmed out publications Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. really that one doesn't get the opportunity for rigorous editorial feedback. And um, I'm increasingly wary of that. Hmm. Hmm. Can you talk about an experience where you did have uh, rigorous editorial feedback? I did a piece for, I'm doing a piece, I mean, it's coming out, I think, next month, or Granta. 
and um, really, really for me, powerful experience. I mean, not the less because it's a magazine that I always sort of read and looked <laughs> looked up to, so to speak. But, you know, I'd worked with an editor who sort of was, I mean, a guest editor. So he, I think, had read my book and invited me to write. And it was, I mean, of course, pitch what you want to write. It's a travel-related thing. But, I mean, this hmm. was during the lockdown period. So there was certainly no traveling happening. But I, I began to write about my, my father, right? Um, and, mm. um, you know, and it, it was very, very strange because I, 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 I just didn't, I'd not up till that point really opened up in my thinking about what, how I could write about him. Mm. And once I, he, I mean, and the, and the editor, Will Atkins, started giving me a lot of feedback. And by the time we were done, this is a process that began like December or November of 2020. And um, I think we, we finished the, we had a final draft by March <laughs> and it's mm. coming out in November. So it's a really extensive process. Um, yeah, I think wow. I did about four or five drafts. And what was very useful about it for me was that um, no sentence was not questioned, right? For the most part. Mm. I mean, there were a number of sentences that were okay, but like he he pushed me to work on not just the structure, but um, what is this word? Why don't you? Why are you using this word? I mean, would you use yeah. a different word? And and I really fe- I really feel like it's one of the most important things I've written. Um, well, it's not out, so I you can't be you can't judge that, but I think it's. <laughs> I um, I'm very grateful for it, and um, and and then of course by the time I was done, I realized that um, I'd actually been writing in a sense um, a, a piece that could walk within the book I was working on, hmm. which is equally family narrative and all. And so it just felt truly like a gift to have to enter into this process blind, so to speak, and come out feeling like you have articulated something essential about, um, in, in my case, the past um, and my family and my mm. father, of course. Yeah. Well, that's such a beautiful testament to, to the power of a good editor. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure that if there are editors listening, that will, will spur them on. Um, the, the last question or the question mm. I'll end with is you, you've said a few times um, about when a text is done. And I wonder, how do you know when it's done? Yeah, um, let me think about that. I mean, I like to start with the the more practical ways the text is done. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, if you're working with um, if you're working with, say, a publication, it's really. And you're, you're not, I mean, it's, when you're working with a publication, a short form and all of that, it's not as focused as, say, working on a book. So mm-hmm. I feel like the, the, the point for now of, like, of either forms would differ, right? So if you're working on a text, say, if a writer is working on a text with Momos, right, it's done really when both, both of you feel like it's done, right? Sometimes right. the writer <laughs> thinks it's done. And you're like, no, you need to give it another push. And there's still a number yeah. of questions. I mean, I've been working about, as an aside, I've been working on an essay for the New York Review of Books since March 
And, oh my god! And it's, it's not even. <laughs> I, I think I have maybe like five more drafts to go, but that's a different oh, conversation. My goodness. <laughs> which again, it's, it's it's depending on the publication. They are pretty thorough yeah. with their print essays. Um, yes. And um, and so I think yeah. So for shorter form, you know, it's really when both people feel like it's done. To some degree, that's the case if you're working on a book. But I feel like for the book, for a book, um, the writer has to, especially when it's like lengthy narrative, if it's not yeah. a collection of essays or whatever. But like if it's lengthy narrative, a memoir, like a, a novel or whatever, right? You, you first of all have to go draft by draft, figuring out what the book is trying to do, right? The first mm. draft is usually you know, not even close to what the book would be usually. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, but most people write the first draft to just sort of get it out of the way to know they can actually finish the book or finish the draft of the book. And then by the second draft, um, maybe by that time you're getting some feedback from your agent or an editor. You are now trying, you're now understanding what the book is doing in terms of like, it's say it's characters, the events that you're trying to describe. And so... As I speak to you now, like, I, I think my book is done, but I'm sort of not sure because my editors haven't said, you know, <laughs> you know, let's just go into copy edits and all that. And so yeah. um, um, I think, I, and, and this is finally would answer your question, really, I've jumped about, <laughs> but I, I feel like um, two things that helps or that is helping me understand when a text is done, really that I... I realize that I am not caught in any corners. I think mm. anybody knows if you're doing any work, you know when you have not given it everything, yeah. right? I mean, I don't think that's, so, I think that's something intuitive. And I actually believe very strongly that writers have that sense, especially yes. when they become older or when they, you know, of course they've written for a while, I mean, right? So when that, when you know that you've given the text everything in terms of, if you are writing a nonfiction piece, you've done all the reporting that is possible. If you're mm-hmm. writing a novel, you have questioned the place of every character um, or every chapter. If you've um, gone over the, the passages a couple of times to, to know that everything that you should catch, you've caught it from your own end. Um, so that's one way to know that you're done. And then the other way to know is really when you start getting feedback from people that you trust, um, when they start telling you, okay, I feel this way when I read your text. This is what I feel like it's communicating. And once that feedback corresponds to some degree with your ambitions, I mean, of course, it can't be 100% correspondence, right? But mm-hmm. once you begin to begin to hear things that you feel like, oh, this is what I have been trying to do, then I think you're pretty much done. Um, because the yes. worst thing that can happen to a writer is to just be murdered in some kind of like stasis, right? Like you just feel like you have to walk on something over and drudgery becomes. I mean, at mm-hmm. that point, I feel like you should write something else. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish with assistant production from Mitra Shiram. The season's music is arranged by Ulysses Castellanos. 
We'd like to thank Emmanuel Aduma for his contribution to this season. And a special thanks to all of you who are supporting the podcast. If you are, that's so wonderful. And if you aren't, it would be great if you did. Mm-hmm. You can find us at patreon.com backslash art, or you can contact me directly at skygooden at momus.ca. This has been episode 34 of Momus the Podcast. <laughs> That's what we call a wrap. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha